in your Bibles, Guy chapter 2. It's on your large print sheets. And uh, it is also, if you're looking in a pew Bible, you'll find it starting on page 1277 and going through to 1279. So beginning on 12, actually 1278. So 1278, we're going to be reading verses 10 through 23. So Haggai chapter 2, reading verses 10 through 23, page 1278 and going through to 1279. This is the word of God as it comes to us as it comes to us from Haggai chapter 2 starting in verse 10 <clears throat> On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? And the priest said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, Will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now, carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days, when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. 
well beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we look for the last time in this series at Haggai chapter 2, 10 through 23. We dealt with it last week as well, in which we see that the Lord reassures his people that he will bless them. The Lord reassures his people that he will bless them. And so as we come then to this uh, final consideration, let me remind you, as I did last week, about this little book of Haggai. Uh, Chapter 1, Bags with Holes, we see that the Lord corrects his people's priorities with regard to material things. So we're going to have a similar uh, idea today as well. Don't keep on earning money. It's like putting money coins into bags with holes. And those, those bags, of course, will not be able to hold those coins. All of the things that you give that you think this is, uh, this is where your security is going to be, where your fulfillment is going to be, God will punish you. Indeed, you will find it totally unfulfilling. Then as you come into chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, a glorious temple, the Lord reassures his people uh, with regard to the glory of the temple. He says, be strong and work and do not fear. He issues those commands and he gives comfort by means of his presence, but also by means of the reality of the sovereignty and the glory and the peace of God. Now, two prophecies came to Haggai the same day, and that's what we find here at the end of chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. And so that you'll see um, <clears throat> verse 10 on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, and then verse 20, and again the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the 24th day of the month saying. So as we talked about this, we suggested this would be approximately December 18th, 520 B.C., so we can pretty much nail down exactly what day this was. Uh, Three months after the people had started to work on the temple, but now there is these two further prophecies uh, given by Haggai. This is all about rebuilding the temple. That's the point here. It's rebuilding the temple. You remember, we're taking a break from the book of Ezra. And so the people laid aside the rebuilding that they were discouraged, and they laid aside that work. But then later on, several years later, later on Haggai and Zechariah, those two prophets, <laughs> prophesied the, what we have in front of us here. And as a result of that, then the people started to work again. They immediately were stirred up to go back, to, to heed the call, to, to work and not to fear in terms of this. So now three months later, three months after that initial prophecy of Haggai, now we have these two prophecies given on the same day in this last two-thirds of, this prof- of chapter 2. Last time we looked at the question that was offered. It was, of course, from Haggai, but it was really from the Lord. The Lord was asking these questions, if you will, asking them of the priest, the ordinary ministers, 
the substance of which was this. Cleanness basically cannot be communicated. That which is unholy can communicate unholiness to whatever it touches. But cleanness cannot be communicated to something. But defilement, uncleanness, easily can be. Remember we gave at least a couple of illustrations, a sick person and a well person. So you have someone who has a cold and someone who doesn't have a cold. Well, you, the person who doesn't have a cold can't communicate health to the one who is sneezing and coughing. But the opposite, uh, of course, is true. Namely, the one who has the cough and the cold can communicate that. That's why you stay away from a person who has a cold. Or the same way with uh, water or a drink and you put poison in it. And, of course, that poison then goes all throughout. The, the fact that it's maybe nine-tenths water and one-tenth poison doesn't do away with the poison, with the potency, or with the, the fact that it is something that is still poisonous. So sin, then, is easily transmitted and engaged in, but not holiness. For our natural bent, our natural inclination is to sin. And so we talked about the meaning and the, the point of this. The nation had originally been set apart and thus was holy, Leviticus 19, verse 2. <clears throat> but now the nation of Israel had been defiled and everything that it touched became unclean. The people were not wholeheartedly committed to God. And just like the fact that the temple lay like a dead corpse in their midst defiling them, so they themselves were like that dead corpse. They themselves were defiled. What we have here again is a rebuke to their materialism. Even while building, their hearts had to be right before God. They couldn't just go through the motions. Their, their hearts had to be right before God. And cleanliness then, cleanness, consisted of more then ceremonial decontamination. It had to be a matter of the heart. How then could Israel be cleansed? If we look at verse uh, 14, we see that even, even, their, um, uh, even their offerings were defiled. And Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. See, is God pleased with our worship? Well, when we don't offer it um, in the name of Christ, we don't offer it according to God's command, the regulative principle of worship, when we do those kinds of things, no, he's not pleased with it. But he's also not pleased with it unless our hearts are right before him. Uh, Psalm 66, the, the Lord will not hear the prayer. The Lord will not hear the prayer of the unrighteous, of the wicked, the one who is not in a right relationship with him. Even their sacrifice, even what they offer there 
is unclean. And so the only hope then was in God's free, gracious acceptance. The people heeded the prophet's rebuke and turned good intentions into actions. The people thus experienced saving grace through the exercise of faith. And as we noted last week then, in terms of application, my friends, we need to be wholeheartedly committed to God. Unite my heart, thy name, to fear. Unite my heart, thy name, to praise. An outward religion is insufficient. Now, outward religion is necessary. We have to worship. We have to gather with God's people as God provides the opportunity, as we are providentially able to do so. So we have to be here in body and so forth, and we have to engage in action. We we sing praise to God, we listen to his word and so forth. We say amen to the, to the message and to the prayers. And so outward religion is important and necessary, but outward religion by itself is insufficient. We must be committed to God. And so that's the basic message that you have here by means of these questions. And the challenge then came, consider, three times, consider, consider, pay attention. Punishment is coming. Notice verse 16, the unrealized expectations, the 20 ephahs of grain, oh, 50%, 10, only, you get only 10. The wine vat, 50 baths from the press, there were but 20, only 40%. But notice that it was because of God's direct opposition. It is God who smote. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident. It is God who did it. Verse 17, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands. The reason for the punishment, it was a heart issue represented by the desolation of the temple, represented by the fact that the people had laid that aside in order to build their own houses. Now, you know, we started, Miss Penny and I started this ministry almost 13 years ago on the steps. You know where it is over there, St. Mark AME, just four stone walls. Well, that's sort of the picture that you have. It's a, that's a broken down building, isn't it? And in the case of the people of Israel, they were supposed to rebuild, to renovate that building as an expression of their devotion to God and also as an expectation, as an anticipation of the fact that the true temple would someday come. And so, therefore, uh, as we see the temple's desolation here, we recognize that the reason why it was desolate is because the people had decided to set it aside and not rebuild, and that was a manifestation of the problem of their heart. Well, today, then, we come to the blessing, though, the blessing 
uh, starting in verse 19 and going to the end of the chapter, the blessing. And the first thing we see of the blessing here is the promise. Notice the preparation in verse 19. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. See, the seed had not even been planted yet. The fruits had not brought forth. But now, almost as a surprise, almost unexpectedly, we have the promise. But from this day, I will bless you, God says. God promises to bless them. Now, today we read uh, earlier from Malachi chapter 3. Now, it's very interesting, Malachi 3. There are several themes that are very appropriate to our message today. And one of them, of course, you remember, has to do with tithing, which, again, is an indication of what's in the heart, where Jesus said, where your treasure is there, will your heart say. And so in Malachi 3, we read, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. For you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And there we have the theme, the promise of God's blessing upon his people. Now, no one would have dared to have forecast the quality of next year's harvest, especially in light of years past. God is the one who had sent the blight and the mildew, the blasting. But his boldness here, as Haggai's boldness, proves how certain he was that his that the revelation that had been given to him was authentic. And so he gives this message through the Lord coming to him. He gives this message even before the, the harvest is, is prepared, even before we have anything, I will bless you. And of course, that's going to be a sign, is it not? It's going to be a token of God's rich blessings, not just physically, but spiritually. Now, please note then several things. First of all, listen to me very carefully here. Material blessings do not always follow upon obedience. So it's not like some preachers will say, yes, you give so much money to the church and you're going to end up with a Cadillac. No, it doesn't work like that. So material blessings do not always follow upon obedience. Oftentimes they do, but not always. But here, they were tokens of the fact that there was faithfulness on their part that was beginning to be evident, and God was going to be pleased to bless them in this way. Secondly, note that God is the one who sovereignly chooses to bless. He did not have to bless at all. No one can twist the arm of God. However, he does choose to bless the faithfulness which he himself has effected, which he himself has brought about. And so God is pleased. We say, well, will God accept our good works? Well, he accepts our good works in Christ. 
and he's pleased then to bless our good works, not as we offer them as some way of getting right with God, some way of earning browning points with him, but as we offer to God our lives and the fruit of our lips and the work of our hands. And so he chooses to bless the faithfulness, to bless the good works which he himself works within us. Thirdly, note that God was pleased to bless with spiritual blessing. The material blessings are merely pictures of spiritual reality. And God is hearing cool that their labor would not be in vain. So it was a token. It was a symbol, if you will, of that deeper blessing. And then let me also note something kind of interesting here. If you look back to Ezekiel 38 and 39... Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Now, this is a very interesting passage, and we're not going to get into this uh, a lot. But here we have a pagan nation coming, and God judges them, and God kills them. If you look at chapter, if you look at chapter 39, with regard to uh, Gog and uh, Magog. Chapter 39, verses 11 and following, it will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone... He shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamona, multitude. Thus they shall cleanse the land. Now this is a picture then of the destruction of Israel's enemies. And those fallen enemies, you see, are a stench and a defilement in the land those foreigners, those enemies of God and of his people. But in Haggai, the people themselves, the people themselves, because of their uncleanness, are the ones who are causing the defilement. And therefore, only the free grace of God can bring about their cleansing. But that's the hope, and that's what the prophet here is talking about. He's saying, he's not saying you're better than Gog and Magog. He's saying you, everyone has sinned and come short of the glory of God. But what is the difference for the people of God? The difference is the grace of God, his free grace, his undeserved love, his undeserved favor. And that's going to make the difference. Notice also as we come to this last part of Haggai chapter 2, not only the promise in verse 19, I, from this day I will bless you, but also the destruction of enemies. Now notice the, the different 
figures used here, the different figures used here. The end of verse 21, I will shake heaven and earth. The shaking uh, of the heavens and the earth. Uh, what's interesting again is that as you go back to Ezekiel chapter 38, Ezekiel 38, 19 and 20, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken surely in that day. There shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. So you see there is similar terminology here. So we find these things throughout Scripture, shaking the heavens and the earth. That's what God is going to do. I will shake heaven and earth. He will also, he says here, overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Again, you find that throughout Scripture where God is the one who sets up nations and then he destroys them. Matter of fact, he says uh, in the next phrase, verse 22, I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms or the kingdoms of the nations. He'll destroy their strength. Also, I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. And of course, today we would say those are tanks and half-tracks and Humvees. Whatever the nations would use to foster war, you see, God says, I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. And furthermore, the destruction of the horses and riders reminds us of Exodus 15. The horse and rider, he has thrown, God has thrown into the sea in terms of the Exodus. When God destroyed Pharaoh and all of his army. And that's what you find here. The horses and the riders shall come down. And then notice something very interesting. Everyone by the sword of his brother. Isn't that interesting? It reminds me, I'm sure it reminds you, of the story of Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? In, uh, look at it uh, with me just for a moment in uh, Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. It's a great story, of course. We uh, And children, you be sure to ask your parents about this later. <clears throat> When I uh, have taught American history, I talk about the Overmountain Men and Samuel Doak, who is a Presbyterian minister in what is now Northeast Tennessee, and he offers this prayer as he inspires the Overmountain Men to go fight the British over in uh, Kings Mountain. And uh, he says at the, at, in the prayer, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And so I get to tell the story to my students who don't know the Bibles. Uh, with regard to Gideon. But notice at verse 22 of chapter 7 of Judges, when the 300, so God, they were, so God reduced Gideon's army to 300 against tens of thousands of the Midianites. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. Isn't that amazing? They killed themselves. They killed themselves. And that, of course, is exactly what you find here. Everyone by the sword of his brother. But that's God's judgment. 
It's the confusion of the people, but it's God using that confusion and, and opposition that they end up killing themselves. So, those are the different figures that are used here. Now, let's look and see what the meaning of this is. Notice, notice that this is spoken, verse 23, this is spoken to Zerubbabel. Now, who was Zerubbabel? Well, he was the head of state. He was the head of state. He was the successor to the line of David. Uh, But he was, therefore, he was a petty prince. He was a small fry, a petty prince of Judah, which at this point was a small, impoverished nation under foreign domination. Yet, he was chosen to be a key link in an unbreakable chain leading to Messiah. You notice what it says there? Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel. So look for a moment, then, at the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in verse 6, and Jesse begot David the king, David the king begot Solomon, by her who had been the wife of Uriah, and so forth. And uh, then look at verse 12. After that they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. Abiad begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, and so forth. Showing the connection, you find the same thing in Luke chapter 3, although it goes in the opposite direction. But in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Seven. Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then you go down to verse 27, the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, and so forth. Isn't that interesting? So even though this is a, a, a small prince, if you will, petty prince, not very important in the world's eyes, and yet he was chosen to be a key link in an unbreakable chain that went all the way back to David. And so you see, uh, we talk about Jesus being the greater son of David. Well, my friends, he's also the greater son of Zerubbabel, is he not? All of the opposition, you see, to Messiah, to the Christ, to the anointed one of God, all the opposition will totally be annihilated and wiped out. Verse 22. And this destruction is a part of the blessing for God's people. Blessing that will ultimately find its culmination not in Zerubbabel, but in the one 
who is going to descend from Zerubbabel, namely Jesus the Christ. And that leads us then to look at this whole doctrine of election, this whole doctrine of election, of choice. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, and so forth. I will take you. I will designate you. And how will this play itself out? Well, notice what he says here. And will make you like a signet ring. Now, the word ring is, is implied there, is, is uh, provided, a signet. So this figure of a signet ring signifies man's signature. So you see the word signature there in signet. You see the relationship between them. A signet ring would be like um, if you had a, um, a person would have a, sometimes you, you see this, uh, maybe in old timey movies or whatever, where someone will seal an envelope with wax and then will take his seal that he has on the, his, on his finger and will, will press that in order to say it is sealed so that no one can open that envelope. You see, if it gets broken, just like breaking a seal. So it's, and it's like a signature. It's the instrument through which he did legal and financial transactions. And it was the specific means, the specific means by which he communicated his will, a man, a man would communicate his will to the world around him. So what is the significance then of this signet? Well, it points to Christ. It points to Christ. Christ as a seal, a testify, attested and certified to us the will of God. Christ is the one who brought his father's doctrine, his father's law, his father's commands. And it is the father who has given dominion to Jesus Christ. All power is entrusted to him. The great charter of salvation is signified and ratified by him. And that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, we read, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. It is sealed, just like a signet ring, sealing it, but Jesus sealed it by himself. Indeed, the Father is the one who has delight in him. And this too fits with the fact that he is the signet of God. Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son. The voice from heaven came when Jesus was baptized. As the water of baptism was sprinkled upon him, as the Holy Spirit descend it like a dove empowering Jesus at the same time the voice came from heaven this is my beloved son hear him listen to him and so we have this idea then of a signet but also in terms of election the the notion of the elect itself 
in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter writes, coming to him, that is say Jesus, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And so Jesus is the elect, the chosen one of God. But we then are elect in Christ Jesus. All blessings flow from this reality of the fact that God is the one who has chosen us in Christ from before time began. But Jesus is the elect of God in whom we as his people are also elect. But then thirdly, notice one final thing here in uh, Haggai. Um, so we have the idea of, of a signet, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts, but did you notice something else here? Zerubbabel is identified by God as Zerubbabel, my servant. Zerubbabel, my servant. We could even say Zerubbabel, my slave, perhaps. But Zerubbabel, my servant. And again, this points to Jesus, does it not? In Isaiah 42, in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Isaiah 42 and verse 1, the... The prophet Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. My elect one, but my servant. This, of course, fits with what Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Actually starting in verse 9 with regard to Zacchaeus. You remember we, the wee little man, Zacchaeus? And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, Jesus came in order to save us, in order to work on our behalf. And that's why in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, Jesus Mm -hmm. says, well, starting in verse 27, and whoever desires to be first among you Let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So the service to which Jesus was called, ultimately, was that of death on the cross, paying the ransom, paying the price for our sins, but it's all part of the fact that Jesus not only was the signet certifying the truth, 
and the one who was chosen, the elect in whom we are elect, but was also the servant, just like Zerubbabel was God's servant. And so, my friends, I have three points of application today. First of all, the Lord reassures his people that he will bless them, and therefore we need to rejoice in that. The Lord reassures his people that he will bless them. And there are many times throughout church history, many times in our own lives, when we get very discouraged and wonder what God is doing. Indeed. But the Lord reassures his people that he will bless them and sovereignly accomplish his purposes. Number two, his blessing is totally because of his free grace in Christ, not because of any works but because of his free grace in Christ. And therefore, I call you to believe in Jesus and to trust in the salvation that he has brought about. But number three, destruction surely awaits those who are not found in him. And so I call you to consider that reality. And if you are not in Christ, young person, older person, whoever you may be, if you are not in Christ, I call upon you now, don't be subject to God's wrath, but rather by grace, look to this greater son of Zerubbabel, the one who is the true temple, the one who's the true temple. That's why the the people had to build the temple in order to point to Christ. And so God here also is taking this little figure, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, in order to point to his greater son, the Lord Jesus. Because only in him can you avoid the destruction that Jehovah will surely bring against you. God, you see, promises his people, despite the fact that they are sinful, despite the fact they are unholy, despite the fact they have nothing to offer God in and of themselves. He says, despite all of that, from this day, I will bless you. They are unholy, but they are blessed. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we thank Thee for Thy word of truth, and we thank Thee especially for Thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O God, that by Thy grace we may be found in Him, who to know is life itself. We'll thank Thee for it, in Jesus' name.